your church. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Track number two on God's playlist. So for those of you who missed uh, last week, we are currently in a sermon series on the Psalms, on the book of Psalms, which we described last week as a school of prayer, a school of prayer, a school that you come into to learn how to pray, to speak to God. That's what the Psalms are like. And last week we also imagined Psalms 1 and 2, the first two Psalms, as kind of a doorway into this school. So you could imagine, as we said last week, uh, Psalms 1 and 2 as doorposts into this school. The first doorpost, Psalm 1, orienting us to the Word of God, and the second doorpost, orienting us to the Son of God. So today we will look together at Psalm 2 with God's help. Now, Psalm 2 was actually preached for, for this church uh, less than two years ago, but it would be good, I think, to revisit it, to revisit this psalm, because it's a very important psalm. It's one of the most quoted, most referenced psalms in the New Testament. So now as I read this word, uh, brothers and sisters, this psalm, please give your attention. Uh, please bow your hearts before this word, for these are the words of the King of Kings, and he is here with us today. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So as you can see, brothers and sisters, this is an epic psalm very dramatic psalm. Uh, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, in, in the third movie, there's this scene where the army of Sauron, the bad guy, the villain, 
comes against the city of Gondor. So you have the, this huge, dark-looking army of, of orcs and trolls. They come with their siege towers and their catapults, and they're just raging against this city. And it's a very, it's a very dramatic scene. This is kind of like that. But actually, it's even greater in scale because what we see in this psalm is that this is a global thing. This is global. It's the kings of the earth come and set themselves against God. Very dramatic. And actually, it's even more than just global. This whole psalm encompasses not just earth, but also heaven. And so it's not just about the world, but about worlds. It's very grand in its scale. So this epic drama of this psalm, Psalm 2, unfolds in four scenes. And each scene is three verses long, four scenes. And uh, this is how I've titled these scenes. So scene number one is rebellion on earth. Scene number two is the response from heaven. Scene number three is royalty in Zion. And number four is rebels on earth advised. Okay, rebellion on earth, response from heaven, royalty in Zion, and rebels on earth advised. So this story starts on earth, and then it goes all the way up to heaven. And then it comes back down partway to this hill, and then comes all the way back down to earth. So that's sort of the progression, the structure of this story, of this, this epic drama of Psalm 2. So let's begin with scene 1, Rebellion on Earth, which is verses 1, 1 to 3. A global army gathers together. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This is an angry army, a raging army. Why do the nations rage? And now who is the target? Who is the target of the rage, the fury, the anger of these kings and rulers? And we see very clearly that their anger is targeted at God. Verse 2, they take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. However, since the Lord is out of reach, He is in heaven, these kings and rulers, they settle for the next best thing. They settle for someone they can reach who is uh, his anointed. So they set themselves, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Lord's representative on earth. So who is this anointed one that is mentioned in verse 2? Who is he? We know from Acts chapter 4, verse 25, that David is the one who wrote this psalm. And David, we know, was anointed to be king. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel. And from the psalm itself, it's clear that this, this whole, this anointed one, uh, this psalm is supposed to be at least about David's dynasty, if not about David specifically. It speaks of Zion, and that's all connected to David's kingship and to his descendants. And so many scholars believe that this psalm was perhaps written as a coronation psalm, meaning it was a psalm written for the occasion when either King David or one of his sons 
were crowned or installed as king in Zion. And that may be true, but the New Testament makes crystal clear, very clear, that David, in writing this psalm, always intended to point beyond himself. He wrote this as a prophecy. This is a prophetic psalm. So many people have called this a messianic psalm as well. And the fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 2, the proper fulfillment, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is also the Son of David, also part of the whole Davidic dynasty. So he's the, the perfect, the culmination of this prophecy. And Christ, as you know, the word Christ means anointed. So the word Christ comes from the Greek word for anointed. So Jesus Christ is the anointed one of Psalm 2. So why do the kings and the rulers rage against the Lord and against Him, against this anointed one, against Christ? Well, the nations rage because Christ has rightful dominion over the whole world. The law of God and of His anointed one is universal. It's universal. It applies to the whole world. It doesn't just apply to the 12 tribes of Israel. His moral law is for everyone. His commandments are for all the kings and all the rulers. And they don't like that. They don't like that at all. The world hates that. Because to them, they see the law not as a stream of water, a stream of life, as we were, as we were looking at from Psalm 1. But they see it more so as shackles as bonds, as cords. That's why we see in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They see God's commandments as restricting their freedom. And so they rebel. They rebel against the one who should be their king, the one who created them. And they rebel against God as well. They want to live life according to their own will, not according to the will of God. And so David, as the narrator of this drama, the writer of this psalm, he responds to this whole situation in this way. He says, why? Why do the nations rage? This is a rhetorical question, okay? What he means is, why would you do that? He makes a judgment that this is not going to work. It's not going to work out for these kings and rulers. And so he says in verse 1 that the people's plot in vain. They plot in vain. And in Hebrew, uh, literally this means they meditate emptiness. They meditate emptiness. And so this should make you think of Psalm 1 from last week. There you have the blessed man who is meditating on God's law. But in this Psalm, you have these kings and rulers, and they are meditating emptiness. And when it says meditate emptiness, what it means is not that they are not thinking about anything. What it means is that unlike the blessed man who meditated on the law, they are, they are conspiring, they are strategizing, they are using mental energy to make a plan that will fail, a plan that will come to nothing. So that's what it means by meditating emptiness. They plot in vain. So even though this humanly speaking, is a scary scene. Like all the kings of the earth, imagine if all the presidents, Putin and Biden and uh, President Xi, Xi Jinping, all of these leaders came together against one 
country. That's, that's scary, humanly speaking. You have these raging armies. But verse 1 tells us, it's okay. It's no problem. They are plotting in vain. It's not going to work. And we see why as we move to scene 2. Scene 2, response from heaven. Verses 4 through 6. So you can imagine the camera lens was on the ground looking at all these kings and rulers, but now it goes all the way up to heaven, into the throne room of God. And what do we find there? We find God sitting. He's sitting. He has not gotten up. He, ha he has not started pacing his throne room, thinking, what shall I do about these rebels? He's not stressed. What does he do instead? He laughs. He laughs out loud, LOL, as the kids like to say. And why does he laugh? He laughs because, as you can imagine, from his vantage point, all the way up in heaven, you look down, the camera pans down from heaven, and what do you see? You see this, these little ants, these little angry bugs on the ground, and they're all gathered, but from heaven's perspective, they're so small, they're as nothing. But they think they can do something, and so that's funny from a heavenly perspective. They think they can fight God and win these angry little bugs, and so he laughs. But that's not all. There's also fury. There's also anger, as we see in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. There's fury because of the audacity of these, these tiny creatures, the utter disrespect shown to the Most High. So one, one illustration I have for this is, have you ever been slapped by a kid? Have you as an adult ever been slapped by a little child? Um, maybe not, but when, when a kid slaps me, I have this mixed response. Uh, on the one hand, I want to laugh. I do want to laugh because it's just unbelievable. The, 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 the boldness, the, the ignorance, they clearly have not thought this through. There's something funny about that, and I want to laugh. But also at the same time, uh, I really want to discipline this kid because it takes a special kind of arrogance to attack someone who is your superior. And so you see that heinous... Uh, sinful nature that's in there and so and that's sort of what we see here except you multiply this by infinity because the distance between a child and me is nothing compared to the distance between a creature and his creator which is infinite and so here you have the Lord laughing on the one hand and also furious at these these tiny little rebels so what is God's verbal response to this rebellion. What does God say in response? That's what we see in verse 6. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he looks at all these kings and rulers and he says, Okay, well, I have my king. You have all your kings, I have my king. And I only need one. And I will set him there on Zion, this holy hill. And this word set is very strong in the original. It means established. So he's going, he going, he's going to put Christ there in a way that 
Nobody can move him. None of these kings are going to be able to dislodge him out of that place. So that's God's verbal response from heaven. And that leads to the third scene. Scene three, royalty in Zion, verses seven through nine. So now the camera lens moves down from heaven. It goes to this holy hill that God speaks of, this hill, Zion. In Jerusalem, the place where the Davidic dynasty was established. And what do we find here? We find a divine decree, a divine decree. So God speaks to the king. God speaks to his representative on earth. So David is writing here as if God is speaking to him. But again, he's only speaking as a type and a shadow of the king who is to come, his greater son, Jesus Christ. So these words are really for King Jesus, therefore Jesus. So what we have here is inter-Trinitarian speech. So what does God the Father say to God the Son? Here, he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, God gives the king of Zion, who is Christ, authority, authority to rule and to judge the whole earth and to defeat his enemies who are gathered against him, the enemies from the first scene. And some of you might be wondering, so if this is talking about Jesus, why did God need to give him authority? Doesn't Jesus already have authority over the whole earth? You might be wondering that. And the simple answer is that um, Christ is both God and man, okay? Jesus Christ, after his incarnation, he's both God and man. So as God, yes, he has authority inherently over the whole earth. But Jesus Christ as man did not have this authority as concerns his human nature. He came after his incarnation as a humble servant. In the Westminster Standards, it speaks of his state of humiliation. Okay, that was his state of humiliation before his resurrection. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he had not yet recovered the dominion over the, the earth that, that Adam lost in the fall. That was not yet recovered. When was it recovered? It was recovered at the resurrection. After Jesus died and after three days, he rose again. And we know this because when we read uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul, quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Psalm 2, 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul says that the fulfillment of that is the resurrection of Christ. And so that's why when you come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is after his resurrection that he says, now all authority has been given to me. And of course here he's speaking concerning his human nature. And it is in that authority that he sends us out. So now that's why he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So all authority of the whole earth has been given to me. So now 
in essence, go conquer, not with swords, not with bullets, but with the gospel. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of, of the Holy Spirit. And so in this scene, what we see is that God empowers the king of Zion to reign over the ends of the earth. And that leads us finally to scene four, rebels on earth advice. This is verses 10 through 12. So now the camera, which was on the hill, it comes back down to ground level, back to these kings and rulers, back to these raging kings and their armies. But now, after we've considered the heavenly perspective, after we've considered this king in Zion who has received heavenly divine power, now when we come back to these, these kings and rulers, we realize they are not the scary ones. In fact, they are the ones who should be scared. And so a warning is issued. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There's this warning, and they are instructed to kiss the sun in verse 12, which means paying homage. So you may have seen before uh, in certain movies or whatever, where a person kisses the ring on the hand of a king. And what that means is that they are paying homage. They are swearing allegiance, loyalty, fealty to this king. They are saying, you are my king. You rule over me. I am under your authority. So that's what that, that action means when you kiss the ring of a king. And so these, that's what these kings and rulers of the earth are told to do. They are told to surrender to this king in Zion so that they are not destroyed by the divine heavenly power that he has been given. And then we come to the last line of the psalm. And we see that Psalm 2 ends how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed. So last Sunday, we, we learned that we are only blessed. We ourselves are only blessed if we are in the blessed man. And that's exactly the point of this last, this last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, if anyone submits to this king, if anyone takes refuge, finds protection in this king, then he will be protected by this king against all these raging armies. No matter how numerous, no matter how overwhelming, he will be blessed. And so with this word of comfort, with this last line of Psalm 2, the, the curtain, so to speak, closes on this whole epic drama. And the doorway into the school of prayer comes full circle. Blessed, blessed. Blessed is the one who meditates on the word of God. And blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Son of God. And then having learned this, now you enter into the school of prayer with Psalm 3, which Pastor Wong will be preaching uh, next week. But even as you enter into the school now of prayer, uh, these two themes are not left behind. The Word of God and the Son of God, the King. These two themes are interwoven into the whole of the Psalter, the whole of the Book of Psalms, as major themes, as grounds for prayer. 
there are a few truths that I would like to highlight from Psalm 2. The first truth is that Christ is the king of the world. And now you would say that's very obvious, that's very simple. But let's meditate on this a little more. Because how central is this truth in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives? How royal and majestic is the Jesus that you know? One way we can think about this is when we think about the question, why should people come to Christ? Why should people come to Jesus? Our usual response for spiritual laws is that, well, you know, if you come to Jesus, um, you, you know, your life is so messed up by sin. And if you want eternal life, you come to Jesus, you believe in him, and he'll, he'll, give, you, he'll give you happiness. He'll give you good stuff. And that's all true, by the way. That's, that's all true and correct. But there's another side of this. Have you ever thought that people should come to Jesus because he owns them? He is their king as well. He has authority, complete right to rule over everyone, including your unbelieving neighbors, friends. He is king of the world. Everyone who is living on earth lives in his world. Abraham Kuyper, the, the Dutch theologian, who was also at one point the prime minister of the Netherlands, he said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Mine! Kuyper says, that Christ looks at every square inch and he says, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. It's all mine. Christ is king of the world. And so, if you are living in the land of a king and you are not obeying his law, then what are you? You're a rebel. You're a rebel. And so, Jesus Christ has a right to tell everyone how to live. He is king, and that's why people should come to Christ. Now you might ask, if Christ is king, then why then is there so much turmoil, so much disorder, so much um, pain and suffering in the world? Why indeed do the nations rage? In response to that, first I want to say that they're actually already, because Christ is king, there already is a lot of stability and order. Whatever stability and order we enjoy right now is because Christ is on the throne and because of His common grace, He allows us to have some relative ease and comfort and order in the world. And so you may not like your government, but at least you have a government. And, the, and Scripture tells us that the reason you have a government is because Christ is gracious. He's the King and He allows for that. But, of course, the other reason why there's so much turmoil, the reason to explain all of that, all the disorder and the suffering, is because Christ is a patient king. He is patient. If he were not patient, he would bring judgment immediately. He would say, all right, all sin and evil, all done. But if he did that, 
a lot of people would be ended. They would have no chance for repentance. But God, Christ, is patient. He is slow to anger. And so He delays the final judgment so that people have a chance to repent. Today is the day of mercy. And this leads to the other truth that i like to highlight from this psalm, which is that Jesus Christ invites rebels to find refuge and blessedness in him. Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this is the good news because we are all rebels. We are the kings and rulers of this psalm. We are rebels because all sin is rebellion against God, against Christ. But Christ, as the king, he invites us to reconcile with him. And not only so, he pardons us. He pardons his rebels. I don't know how many kings in history have taken kindly to rebels. Usually treason is met with very severe punishment all throughout history. How many kings have, have given a rebel a second chance? Most kings throughout history would end Psalm, Psalm 2 at verse 9. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's it. No warning, no invitation. But Christ is the kind of king who would include verses 10 through 12. He gives a chance. He's patient. He does not bring final judgment right away. He does not only give a second chance to his rebels. He gives a third chance. He gives you a fourth chance, a fifth chance. He pardons you beyond measure. He forgives you beyond times that you can count. And not only did he pardon his rebels, he died in order to forgive his rebels. No king in history ever gave his own life to die in the place of a rebel. No king ever exchanged his crown for a crown of thorns willingly for a rebel. But that's our king. That's our Christ. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a king we have. Isn't he worthy? So what we should do in response should be pretty clear. Number one is to surrender and to submit to this king. Bow before him, not only as your savior, but also as your king, the one who has the right to rule over your life. You and I, we can cling so tightly to an idea, a vision of what we want our own lives to look like. We want control. We want the right to rule in our own lives. We want to sit on the throne of our hearts, as some say. But imagine this, if Jesus came to visit you today, and let's say he visits you for a week, he comes into your home, he talks to you, he learns about your life, and at the end, end of it, he says, so this, uh, this young man that you like so much, 
who likes you, who's an unbeliever, you're completely in love with him. For your own good, I want you to give him up. Or this hobby that you have, that you're spending so much time on, uh, that's leading you into bad habits, I want you to give that up. Or perhaps you've been dreaming of this, this beautiful car, you've been saving up to buy it, but now I want you to give that up, take that money and give it to this poor person that's in need. If that happened, would you have the humility to submit to your king? What would you do in that situation? Would you say, yes, King Jesus, without question, you are my king, you rule my life, you get to decide what happens. Or will you be like the rich young ruler that we see in the Gospels? A good guy. Externally speaking, you know, he, he kept the commandments. It seems like he lived a, a so-called good and moral life. But when it came time, when he met Jesus, and Jesus told him, what you need, you lack only one thing. Take your possessions, sell all of them, Give your money to the poor and come follow me. That he could not do. He came to a point where he realized, no, I want to sit on the throne of my own life. I will not have you as my king. In my vision of life, I cannot live without this wealth. And so I will not submit to your rule. And he went away sad, but he went away. He could not submit. Dear friends, don't let that be you. Christ is good and gentle, a good and gentle king, but don't take his patience for granted. He is gentle, but he is not spineless. Okay? He will judge rebels. That's what this psalm warns us about. Three times in the book of Revelation, we see Psalm. 2 verse 9 referenced about this rod of iron. Revelation depicts the glorious Christ. It depicts Christ with this rod of iron coming again, not to atone sin the second time that he comes, but to judge sinners, to put an end to sin. So please, surrender. Surrender your life to this king, a good king, a king who died so that you, a rebel, can live. Surrender to him. He only has your best interests in mind. Be wise, be warned, kiss the sun, be blessed. Now the other thing that we should do in response to these truths, to this psalm, I'll put it this way, laugh with God, laugh with God. In other words, remember heaven's perspective on this whole world. So often we can get so troubled, so discouraged, so anxious about what we see in the news, what we see happening in the world. We get uh, frustrated and alarmed when people, when powerful people do evil things in this world. Or when we see the world, when we see people opposing God, opposing Christianity, opposing His church, we get intimidated. Okay, maybe we read some comments on the internet, on YouTube, about people making fun of, making fun of our faith, 
And we can get so riled up, we get so, we feel so helpless, we don't know what to do. But remember, remember how God responds to all of this opposition. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. It's nothing to him. This does not, this does not fluster him. Now, we ought to mourn with those who mourn. We ought to grieve with those who are grieving. I'm not saying anything against that. We ought to lament for the fact of sin. But there is a place for, for laughter with God. There is a place for, for mockery even, for saying to the world and to all its opposition, is that the best that you have? Kings of the earth? Rulers? That's the best you have? Christ is stronger. We see in scripture that even the last enemy, death, is to be mocked. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There's laughter. There's mockery. So don't give in to worry. Don't give in to fear. Christ sits on the throne. And from his perspective, everything is under control. He is on the throne, and you have access to his throne room. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Pray. Amen. Oh, Lord, come before we thank now. you for your word. We ask that you make up for any lack in the preaching of it. Um, forgive any sin committed in the preaching of it. And we ask that you take your word, um, even from unworthy lips, and put it in the hearts of your people, so that we would know to honor you as our king. Lord, we tend to be so proud. We tend to want control of our own lives. And it's so hard to let go. Like the rich young ruler, we want to cling on. But Lord, please come to us. Help us to trust you to take refuge in you and to honor you, to give you even a fraction of the honor that you deserve as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are sorry for when we take your, your grace for granted. We, we presume to sin that grace may abound. But Lord, please help us to repent and to obey you. It's in your name that we pray. 